1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Have you ever
2: wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. they're gummy and they're crunchy nerds gummy clusters a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds unleash your senses shop now at nerdscandy.com the
1: nba playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing listen to the evidence Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. I'm sure that on Christmas Day, many of you will have plonked down on your sofas after your Christmas dinner to enjoy the first episode of Netflix's lavish new period drama, Bridgerton. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historian Hannah Gregg, who acted as a historical advisor for this new Regency romance, which offers a thoroughly modern and escapist look at the courtship and society of the early 19th century. Putting the questions to Hannah was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
3: Bridgerton has arrived on Netflix. It's a sumptuous drama that reimagines a series of novels by Julia Quinn. And this first series is set in England during the Regency period. Uh, And today we'll be chatting to Dr. Hannah Gregg about the historical detail in the drama and the style of the series. But if you're still watching it at the moment or you haven't started yet, don't worry, there won't be any spoilers. Um, Thanks so much for joining us today, Hannah. Uh, And perhaps we could start by you're giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to the series and your role on it.
4: Oh, where to begin? <laughs> uh well I think Bridgerton is like a kind of period drama like no other. It's um it's a new style really of um Kind of period production that we're going to see or have seen on screen. Uh, So it's set in Regency London and it's um, in the genre of the Regency romance novel. So it's an adaptation of um, a series of novels by Julia Quinn, who's a modern Regency romance author. Uh, But of course, the idea of the Regency romance has quite a long history um, in that the Regency has often been a setting for um, kind of exciting romantic fictions, um, which is what Bridgerton is. Um, So I am a historian of uh, 18th and early 19th century Britain um, and often work as an advisor to film and television. And it was my great fortune to have the opportunity to work uh, with Bridgerton um, as their etiquette advisor, I think is what the title I was actually given. But basically just the person who got to hang around, (laughs) uh, having a lovely time talking about history um, here and there and just uh, had a chance to see the whole thing come together. So I was, uh, yeah, I was very lucky.
3: Well, that sounds like such a fun role. And perhaps we can talk a bit more about a, a bit of the advice you were giving on, on set as we go through the different um, historical details. But um, perhaps we can start by talking about the um, scandal sheet or the scandal paper, Lady Whistledown. This is a paper that drives some of the action in the show. Um, it reports on some of the action in the show. Um, and I wanted to start by asking, really, scandal sheets like this Um Did they exist in in Regency London and when did they first come about? How did they affect things in society in the
4: town? Yeah, they did. I mean, it's one of the things that I loved from the very first moment I saw the scripts and read the books was this idea of this kind of scandal sheet, you know, underpinning everything where everyone's watching everyone else and all of their secrets are going to be revealed um, in this pamphlet. And it's actually very much in keeping with how this kind of world of high society was publicised and talked about um, in the early 19th century. Uh, So, I mean, newspapers ran columns about, you know, what the fashionable world was up to. Up to uh, magazines ran series, the town and country magazine ran a series for many decades actually that kind of exposed the romances and adultery and scandals within high society. Um, and it was very much the kind of you know part and parcel of the print culture of um, early 19th century London with the you know world of the rich and famous being kind of laid out um, in the press. And um, I suppose one of the diversions that we have in Bridgerton which makes it slightly you know a move away from history is that uh, the Lady Whistledown scandal sheets actually name people very clearly with their real name which is important for us because it helps us keep up with, <laughs> with what's going on um but in regency society their identities might have been very loosely disguised um so someone might have just printed their initials like the Duke of H instead of Duke, H- Duke of Hastings or whatever um or some kind of you know some kind of, uh, yeah, masked characters, but it's so obvious who they were talking about. So it was only a way to kind of get around kind of libel law, basically, um, because there's no point in having these columns unless everyone knew who you were talking about. But they would have tried to disguise their identity a little bit um, at the time, whereas in Lady Whistledown, Scandal Sheets, it's named and shamed, named, fully named all the time. So...
3: Uh, and again, no no spoilers. But in the drama, um, this this uh, scandal paper does have some very real real consequences for the families involved that are being written about. Um, and was that the case um, in reality as well? Did Regency families suffer this kind of fallout from gossip? But uh, it seems like whole families could fall from grace with one of these things.
4: Yeah, certainly the stakes were really high, and. Um... I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at the kind of the real history of this world, this, this fashionable society, and and you know it's probably not quite as thrilling as Bridgerton uh, sometimes is, but there's certainly the opportunity for a scandal to break a family, um, and there's a sort of mismatch between what people were allowed to get to in up to in private, and then the moment in which a scandal was revealed in public. And if something hit the press, then quite often it would lead to a woman having to remove herself from society to take a period in exile, um, and that was even the case for Mary women um, as well as unmarried women. So um, the point in which something becomes newsworthy if it's if it's going to affect your reputation in some way then it can be hugely hugely problematic. Um, so yes the press has a big power uh, in terms of people's reputation management um, in Regency society that is, is true of the time and, and it's what we see happening in Bridgerton as well.
3: Yeah, you you mentioned this uh, dual standard of public and private behaviour there, but there was also this clear dual standard um, that I don't imagine many viewers will be surprised to see in Bridgerton, that it was a very different world for both men and women, wasn't it?
4: Yes, (laughs) it was. And, um, you know, particularly when it comes to kind of sex and marriage and courtship. And I mean, historians have often spoken about the kind of double sexual standard that operated in the 18th and early 19th century, where men are permitted a huge amount of sexual freedom uh they're encouraged to be voracious and and libertine and particularly amongst aristocratic men whereas um you know elite women women who have wealth and status their chastity is quite highly prized and protected until marriage Um, so there is a very obvious discrepancy between how the expectations of male and female behavior um, in early 19th century london
3: Bridgerton picks up on the fact that many women, then, as a consequence of this um, uh, level of society, were going into marriage, perhaps unprepared for the realities of married life uh, and everything that brings. Is there any evidence of any? Um, sex education or or kind of etiquette guides that prepared women in this way? Or was it all down to the mothers? Oh, it's a
4: difficult question, isn't it? There's no (laughs) national (laughs) curriculum for sex advice. Um, uh, It's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, we have this sense in which, uh, you know, the kind of aristocratic women are very carefully policed and managed until marriage and that, you know, their reputation has to be carefully protected and yet at the same time they're living in a society that is really kind of boardier than we might think uh, with a lot of very explicit kind of sexual imagery and references um, you know it's the age of the caricature there's a lot of naked bottoms in <laughs> Gilway caricatures there's a lot of kind of sexual innuendo and suggestion in those sorts of images um there's lots of novels available that, you know, very popular kind of best-selling novels that have narratives of seduction and risk inherent in them, which women are presumably be reading and, and thinking about. So, um, it's sort of hard to know, isn't it? What, you know, how much do they know in advance? I don't, I've never come across a letter that said, Oh my goodness, I had no idea what was going <laughs> to happen. And, you know, or, or we've never had, I've never come across that precise bit of evidence that's going to tell us, uh, that answer clearly and so it's the historian's answer isn't it that it's complicated it's that on the one hand we know that women access to men is very carefully managed um, you know restricted to the dance floor, people are chaperoned uh, you know the greatest risk is that a woman's going to run off with a footman and you don't want that to happen so that you know they're kind of quite carefully um, policed but at the same time we know that it's a very highly sexualized society where sex is very visible. Uh, culturally, um, and I, I don't know <laughs> how will we know what that meant to women. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll find the perfect source source eventually. But
3: in Bridgerton, the the mothers loom large. They oh, are yes. fantastic characters, um, and the marriage market is is just portrayed as so brutal for a lot of these young people. Um, what were the mothers' roles in securing matches for their children?
4: Yeah, the Bridgerton world is the world of the matriarch and um and that is in keeping with the the kind of historical world that that I would recognise in that there were some very powerful hostesses, as we'd call them, um, historically, who ran all the balls, who ran the social season, who were kind of managing the marriage market, introducing eligible young people to other eligible young people and kind of managing uh, that pool of um, flirtation. And, um, I mean, some of the mothers, again, you know, historically were notorious for being really ruthless and trying to get their children well married. And so, let me just think, it was the Duchess of Gordon, I think it was, she had four daughters and um you know she was always in caricatures kind of basically pushing her daughters into the lap of some eligible young duke or whatever and um you know she was just Yeah, famed for her kind of determination to get her daughters well-married. And she succeeded. And she got one of them engaged to the Duke of Bedford, um, who was a very good match. Uh, But then sadly, they were engaged and then he died, tragically, just before the marriage. But she was not put off, was the mother, Duchess of Gordon. She just um, arranged the engagement between the heir, his brother, and the daughter instead. So her daughter still became the Duchess of Bedford, but just married a different brother to the one that had initially been, been lined up for her. So um so yeah, there are these stories of the of these mothers being absolutely determined and doing everything they can to make sure that their children are well are well married and, and managing that. And um and yeah, we do see that in British these fabulous uh female characters, yeah. So you mentioned the
3: dance floor, um, the kind of uh The dance in itself of social interactions. Can you um, take us inside, uh, well, either a scene in Bridgerton or or just a a Regency scene, a dance and the etiquette that you were kind of advising on and thinking about?
4: Oh, I don't don't know. I mean, when I think back to Bridgerton, I just remember the complete joy of seeing some of those dance scenes come together. I mean, they had this amazing choreographer and um, just the spectacle was just, you know, kind of fabulous to see it when it was being filmed Uh, to be like the historian (laughs) I put my historian's hat on Um, I mean I think what what Bridgerton does well is it shows how highly charged the dance floor is and we do get a sense of that with period dramas we've seen before with the kind of Austin uh, you know kind of assembly room scenes and things like that but But actually, I think Bridgerton really helps communicate that much more clearly for a modern audience in terms of just how flirtatious and kind of sexy it could be. Because dancing was the kind of bodily contact that men and women had before marriage. And it wasn't just like a quick minute disco you know like you'd have now it was an extended period on the dance floor you know three dancers or dancing twice with someone was a sign of great interest and that might mean you're on the dance floor for half an hour in very close intimate body contact and conversation so it's incredibly flirtatious mm-hmm. <laughs> but also very public um you know so everyone watching noticed if you had two dancers back to back um and actually some of the earliest uses of the word flirting that I've seen as a historian has come in letters about dancing like he flirted with me or they were flirting or and it seems to be particularly kind of linked to the idea of the dance floor so I've I've always been very taken with that idea
3: great so if that's that's one way of um the way in which the show portrays um the social interactions of the time for a modern audience but another way um I certainly loved seeing on screen what was the interpretation of the fashions uh, and the music um yeah. which has really been updated what can you say about that and how that goes across to a 21st century audience
4: oh again I mean they had the most amazing you know people doing all of that and um it was yeah it was a real treat because it's one of the only productions I've worked on where everything everything has been made f- from scratch so not just the you know, the clothes that you see on the leads, characters, but everyone in terms of the background artists. And so it's this highly fashionable, brand new kind of world of fashionable display, which I absolutely loved because of course, you know, this world of the Beaumont, the Bonton, this fashionable society were ultra modern in their day. They were absolutely the cutting edge of fashion. They were the trendsetters. They had the money to spend. They were extravagant. They lived life in the fast lane. And, um, you know, we don't really see that on screen. And we have this idea of it as all so sort of chaste and, and you know, Oh, just genteel is a word we often use for the period but they were super fashionable at the time and vibrant and their clothes were reported in the newspapers you know um, and it, Bridgerton captures that with this technicolour glorious you know often sort of joyous in your face kind of embrace of fashionable the idea of being in fashion or out of fashion and um, I absolutely loved that I have to say as someone who's kind of studied this world of the bon ton, to see it being made modern you know was in keeping with what it felt like at the time um, to be in this world you know. Uh,
3: yes and I loved so many of the scenes at Queen Charlotte's
4: court I wondered if we could talk a little bit about about her who, who was she? Well, Queen Charlotte's the Queen. I yeah. <laughs> say so she's the wife of George the who, you know, other people might know as the kind of the, the king that went mad, in inverted commas. And she's the mother of uh, Prince Regent, the Prince of Wales. Um, and she is, you know, the court is the pinnacle of society, you know, then. Uh, and she kind of, you know, did determine who was in and who was out of fashion to some extent. Um, she didn't like disreputable women at her court. Um, you know, the the court was a place of great importance, um, at the time. And we see that, um, in Bridgerton. And, I, you know, again, I was thinking before I worked on Bridgeton, have we ever seen that kind of court world apart from in the kind of madness of King George, the play and the film? Do we see that world so much? I don't, I don't think we do. And I, I love that it's just, you know, mostly Charlotte and her ladies-in-waiting and all the dogs and absolutely wonderful court dresses, um, you know, just beautiful like kind of constructions of of what was worn at court um at the time so i mean i was i was just in i just loved it all didn't i really i should be more academic about it but it's just great <laughs> still to come on the history extra podcast and so we're sort of playing with the idea of what would society look like under certain different circumstances, both drawing on what we know to be historical reality, but also by asking us to think more carefully about our expectations of what a period drama should look like.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel History historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence: playoff crowds are going wild, playoff players are lighting up the court, even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to eleven NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. About playoffs, the NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel, continuing ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
3: You mentioned before it's a bit different from Austin from the other period dramas that perhaps um, come before it. And one way in which it's different is its diverse cast, um, race blind casting. Uh, and you've written how society at the time is, is much more diverse than most of us probably assume. And though it pushes the envelope a bit perhaps in terms of what race relations looked like then, uh, it does get us a bit closer to what society might have looked like. What what can you say about that aspect of it?
4: Well, I think it encourages us to think about it more carefully, doesn't it? And, And I think... You know, within Bridgerton, it's been discussed by Chris Van Dusen, the the, the, sh- the showrunner, as not colour-blind casting, but colour-conscious casting, where actually it's not that you're I- ignoring race, but you're thinking about it quite carefully. And in Bridgerton, that happens in two ways. So one is that we introduce characters who are inspired by real historical characters. So we have a black boxer, um, who's Will Mondrick in Bridgerton, who um, is inspired by Bill Richmond um, from the time. And then characters cast in places where we might not expect to see um you know people of color so within the aristocracy and so we're sort of playing with the idea of what would society look like under certain different circumstances, both drawing on what we know to be historical reality, but also by asking us to think more carefully about our expectations of what a period drama should look like and also what it might be like if history was slightly different. So one of the aspects of Bridgerton is that um, it plays quite strongly on the idea that has been suggested at various points in history, that Queen Charlotte has some kind of mixed race heritage. Um, And, you know Bridgerton picks up on that and runs with it a bit further than we might otherwise do and then asks the question well if if she did have mixed race heritage what would the society around her look like what opportunities might there have been for other people to be elevated um and you know so it kind of it, it makes us think about those those ways so it's a combination of a historical truth which is that the past is more diverse than we tend to see on screen and we tend to accept in our popular imagination but also then a fictionalizing of asking what might also history look like if under certain different circumstances so it's doing both of those things and I you know I think that's really valuable and drama can be really powerful um in setting that up
3: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask about, there's some really striking scenes filmed. uh, The the Pleasure Gardens in Vauxhall are the the setting for some of the scenes. Um, And I wanted to um, chat maybe about the entertainments and opportunities these presented and a bit about the staging of how those were kind of staged.
4: Yeah, well, again, this is just where I go, oh, it was amazing. (laughs) Because, you know, a historian who has studied and written about Pleasure Gardens, I was on set when they were filming the Vauxhall scenes. It was a night shoot. We had huge cast uh fireworks lighting music and it's the closest I've ever been to being kind of genuinely transported uh, to a different time and place and you know the pleasure gardens are so difficult to describe because to us now they seem sort of I don't know they lose their magic it's just a it's an outdoor pleasure ground where you pay for a ticket and It's full of entertainment, sort of what was seen as modern entertainment. So ideas of different kinds of music, of different kinds of sculpture, of different sorts of encounters with the natural world. Um, As sun was setting, um, you know, in the early summer nights, uh, it's a place where people came together so anyone who could buy a ticket could enter. But part of the attraction was to see this fashionable world who might show up at some point. Um, The gardens were lit up brightly um, at night, which is, you know, dramatic and magical in the early 19th century when there's not a huge amount of street lighting in everybody's life. Um, and then it's also plays with a sense of adventure. The Pleasure Garden was a place where there was an element of risk, advertised risk. So one of the great attractions was that you know you might stumble across someone you shouldn't in the dark walks. Um, there might be drunken people there. That it took you took you to the edge of what was kind of morally acceptable. It's a sort of supercharged fairground slash haunted house slash something. Um, but it doesn't really have a modern equivalent. But it's incredibly important in the 18th century is this new kind of entertainment. Um, and and yeah, so you know I got to be in Vauxhall. <laughs> Um, in filming, and um, so that was a you know a delight. But um, it plays a role, doesn't it, in terms of the narrative that maybe we won't say because of, we don't want to give spoilers. But um, but yes, there's an element of risk and drama that the pleasure garden always carries, which um, is, is part of Bridgerton's world. Mm-hmm. Indeed, love it. So this is um, it's it's a fun
3: series. It's bright. It's a real kind of microcosm. How would the people? Um below have regarded this um, this social strata? Uh, would it have been regarded as particularly opulent, as celebrity? What would it that have been like?
4: Oh, yeah, they were the celebrities of the time. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, what always attracted me as a historian to that world is not just the kind of the world of the glamour and the celebrity, but the ways in which and that very small elite was a massive concentration of power. So they were not just the kind of fashion celebrities of the day. They had all of the wealth, you know, a staggering amounts of money, just huge amounts of money. Um, they had these big London townhouses. So they all came to London for six months of the year. And the reason they came was Parliament. They were all the politicians. They occupied the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, you know, they dominated the political infrastructure. They were the people who went to court... Um, and it's a very small world. It's, you know, a few hundred families um, and, you know, compared to the rest of society. So they were the ultra, ultra, ultra super rich with all the power. Um, I mean, there was, they were subject to a lot of kind of, what you might say is uh, public commentary, kind of, you know, public talk about their behaviour, um, you know, caricaturists ripped them apart. Um, there was, you know, attempts to kind of moderate their behavior and what you see in very very general historical terms I mean historians are going to write to me and complain when I say this but you know we see a very general shift from a kind of you know fast living 18th century world to then a more kind of professional political life in the Victorian era where people begin to distance themselves from their Georgian forebears and their kind of decadent ways Um, and the Regency is the kind of last hurrah of this decadence this kind of you know moment with the Prince Regent where this kind of fast living was was part and parcel of, of the world. And you, you're seeing increasing kind of critical commentary about that behaviour and increasing concern about it in the run up to the Great Reform Act of 1832, which increases the kind of um, social spread um, in Parliament and access of people to the vote. Um, and so this is the kind of the last the last moment of that that georgian decadence that that we associate with the 18th century and early 19th century so i think they were increasingly criticized they were subject to increasing kind of pressures of moral reform um and there is a world of commentary that's sort of starting to hold people to account but um but yeah they are living in the fast lane still <laughs> Right. Uh, And I mean, this. what Bridgerton
3: does so well is is really
4: portray that kind of grandeur,
3: that opulence, that sense of fun that must have been so kind of intoxicating at the time for uh, a
4: select few. Um, Yeah, very select few. And it's just, you know, it's just that, I mean, it's just, you know, we don't really, I suppose we do have modern equivalents. I'm just so far removed from people who own their own island. (laughs) But but, um, but, um, but it's that, it, it is that sense of the huge social distance between those few people in that world. Of this you know kind of fashionable high society and how everyone else lived which makes them both the subject of something that was oh, like a celebrity world to consume but also a fairly grotesque expression of of inequality for sure
3: right and and I mean it doesn't address that nor should it um it's you know it's a it's it's a, a standalone thing regency romance through and through um and, and as a historian working on this, kind of, can you pick out a favourite moment or a, a moment where you really thought this is this is just brilliant?
4: Well, I, I mean, we have talked about Vauxhall Gardens, and I I I loved that, and uh, you know, they filmed that overnight, so everyone was up all night. Um, and I have small children, so that wasn't such a bother to me. <laughs> but I could have stayed up, you know, for many nights, many nights, many nights to go to Vauxhall, and um, it just felt really exciting and special I think uh that that particular moment but there were so many I mean oh god balls and the court and everything I was just you know I don't feel like I did really did any work I was just sitting there going oh this is amazing (laughs) that whole time which probably isn't hugely helpful is it (laughs) um but um but yeah and um I think yeah for me as a historian Vauxhall has to be it because it's so hard to capture that magic Uh, just by reading about it you have to sort of be in it to really experience it so that was that was the kind of the most experience and then from a historian's point of view I think it's exciting to see a period drama doing new things. I always love it when we try and think about different ways of putting the past on screen. Um, this is not a history about everybody. It's not really a history lesson as such because you know we're adapting a modern Regency romance. Um, but it's got lots of elements of a historical world in it that I, am, I love and I'm, I'm familiar with. Um, and I think it, it's nice that, you know, it's always a place for Jane Austen, but we don't always need another Jane Austen. Sometimes it's fun
0: to do something different. That was Hannah Gregg. Bridgerton is available to stream on Netflix worldwide now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Emily Gary discussing the murder of Thomas Beckett.